Christian McBride has been a fan of James Brown since he was a kid, almost to the point of obsession. Those who have called Christian on the phone might have had the privileged experience of getting his voicemail, which, at least the one time it happened to me, was a message from James Brown saying that Christian couldn't come to the phone. James Brown, of course, was known as the hardest working man in show business, and it seems to me that Christian has been doing his best to earn that title for himself, too. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidron. To say that Christian McBride is prolific is both obvious and an understatement. The list of his projects is too long to fit neatly into any one container, but in short, he's a musician, he's an educator, a composer, an artistic director, and a broadcaster. He's an ambassador, a personality, an icon, and of course, he's a bass player. The small handful of times that I've interacted with him, I've had the sense that his days are simply fuller than most people's days. He always seems to be coming from some other event or heading out to another gig. Honestly, it's hard not to run into Christian McBride if you're engaging with this music on any level. He's so busy, but he's also extremely present in the room when you're with him and extremely positive about being there. If he's here, he's here, and he's ready to do the thing, record the tune, read the copy, teach the class, do the take. He is in the moment. The message of Christian seems to be that life is not a rehearsal. Life is the gig. This is it. We are doing it. That's my impression anyway. At 50 years old, he's appeared on more than 300 recordings as a sideman. He's made nearly 20 as a leader himself. He's an eight-time Grammy Award winner. There's nothing trivial about his career. But as he picks up his bass to play, there's an almost mischievous gleam in his eye, a childlike excitement and a clear sense of joy. He loves to play, and it's infectious. It's hard not to feel good watching him do it, and I went down to the Village Vanguard back in December to watch him playing with his band, New John, and to feel good. I talked to him the next day about that gig and about his two-week residency at the Vanguard that month. He was playing one week with New John, a quartet that features Nasheet Waits on drums, Marcus Strickland on saxophone, and Josh Evans on trumpet, and then the following week with another one of his bands, Inside Straight. We had arranged a phone call to speak for five or ten minutes so I could do a short piece for WBGO Radio about those shows and also tease the release of a couple of his upcoming projects. The first one was The Movement Revisited, a musical portrait of four icons. It's an album that Christian started writing back in 1998 and that was developed over years before being finally recorded in 2013. And in fact, it didn't come out until 2020. It was a big undertaking, a four-movement suite dedicated to Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Muhammad Ali, and it featured a big band, a gospel choir, and dramatic readings by respected actors. And in late 2022, the album was released on vinyl for the first time, so we were going to talk about that. And also his new album with the new John was set to come out a couple of months after we talked. In fact, it did come out last month. It's called Prime. And although he wasn't exactly promoting the record when we talked, we were meant to talk about that project as well. Considering we only had a limited window to talk and knowing how busy Christian is, I just didn't expect that we would have much time together. 
I was looking for a few little clips that I could use for my news piece, and I figured maybe we could set up another call later in the year to talk more at length about his career and more. But, as they say in jazz, sometimes what you stumble on is better than what you're looking for. About 20 minutes into our phone call, I realized, this is the gig. This is the thing. This is my interview with Christian McBride. Look, life is long. Who knows what'll happen in the future? Maybe we'll do it again sometime. But for the moment, this is it. And in tribute to Christian McBride, to the teaching of Mr. McBride, the message that he seems to be sending out at all times, to be in the moment, always be ready for what you say and what you play to be recorded for posterity, for history, for all time, I offer you today my phone call with Christian McBride. Visit third-story.com for the full archive, hundreds of conversations with masters stretching all the way back to 2014. And of course, the third story is made in partnership with WBGO Studios, so you can visit wbgo.org studios to find out more about all their award-winning content. Visit patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast to help to pay for our pro Zoom account. And please consider leaving a review or some stars on Apple Podcasts. Here's my phone call with Christian McBride. Hello. Christian, it's Leo Sidrin. Hey, Leo. How you doing, man? I'm all right. How about yourself? I'm good. Thank you so much. I know you are busy. I appreciate you taking a minute. I saw your first set of the first night with New John on Tuesday, and I loved it. Thank you. It was mighty rusty, but we had fun. Was it mighty rusty? We haven't played together as a band in probably uh, almost a year. We had one gig uh, with the New John over the summer. Actually, we had a couple of gigs over the summer, and each one of those gigs, we had a uh, someone sitting in. Now, she couldn't make one gig, and Marcus couldn't make the other, so the four of us together probably haven't played together since our last Vanguard run. So, yeah, we were working, working some kinks out. You said on stage that actually the first time the band came together in that configuration was at the Vanguard. That was correct, in December, December of 2015. What led you to call that assembly of people together? I've always had a couple of different bands going on simultaneously, but uh, I had been working a lot with my trio at that time, with Christian Sands and Ulysses Owens Jr., and uh, of course Inside Straight, which has been my longest-running band. I just wanted to do something uh, that was a little different, you know. Um, after playing in so many different configurations through the years, not a lot of those configurations were cordless. And so uh, I thought I'd try my hand at having a band with no piano and no guitar, you know, just just two horns and two rhythm. Does that change the way you play as a bass player with no chordal instrument? Yes, I feel like I have to be uh, much more clear in my intention and uh, the way I outline harmony and play melodies with the horns. You know, I can be sort of like a third melodic instrument. I, I have somewhat of a dual role in this in this group where, you know, I have the option to be a third melodic instrument, still play my traditional bass role of uh, outlining the harmony and playing the chords and things like that. But because there are no chords there, I think I have to be very, very clear and very intentional uh, in what I play. So the other 
cats in the band and the listener can uh, have something to hang their hat on. Does your approach change in any way when you're the band leader as opposed to being a band member? Is there a distinction for you? In terms of playing the bass, no. It depends on the band leader. I mean, I don't, I've never played with anyone that says, uh, don't play in this band where you would play in your own band and, uh, and, and, and vice versa, you know, people do what they do. And as a professional musician, uh, you should be able to decipher what the music needs, you know, from the point of view, not of the bass then, but just in terms of your role in the band, how does it change when you're the leader? as opposed to one of the members? Well, you're responsible for setting the tone. You're responsible for creating the arc of the set. I tend to really think hard of uh, if the people are enjoying it, if, um, you know, what edits or what additions do I need to make to make the set stronger or making sure just everything works to the best of its ability. You know, and sometimes... When you're not the band leader, your primary goal is just to, at least my primary goal is to serve the leader. You know, am I giving the leader exactly what they want? But when you're the leader, you got a lot of things to think about other than just simply the music. At one point on the gig the other night, you said you were bringing out a a new tune and, uh, you know, it was the first time you were playing it live outside of the studio and you might have to act like Mingus and shout out instructions. But unlike Mingus, you said, I'm not going to hit anybody. <laughs> if they get it wrong. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> how aware are you of Mingus and how present is he in your thought process as a band leader and a bass player? Well, I don't think anybody is a conscious process in my thoughts at this point. You know, maybe when I was 20, 21 years old, trying to figure out how to be a band leader, you know, I would purposely look for examples you know, from all kinds of band leaders, you know, not just Mingus, but Ron Carter and Ray Brown, Dave Holland, Jocko, you know, there's a lot of great uh, bass playing composers and band leaders. But um, yeah, I mean, at one point, yes, I sat down and listened to a lot of Mingus, uh, you know, I don't know if it was so much for ideas, but it was just because uh, he's someone that you have to listen to if you want to learn about this music, you know. As a legacy, his legacy is very vast. When you told the story of your song, John Day, which is a very moving story, you started to dip your toe into talking more deeply about gun violence and politics. And then you stopped yourself, at least on Tuesday, and basically said, you can feel me, I don't need to say anything. You can hear it in the music. Right. It just posed the question, you know, are some things better left said in the music? And how do you feel about talking about politics and resistance and advocacy, questions like that in your music? I like to think I've done a lot of that. If you go back and look at some things I've written, some things I've tried to talk about, and uh, a lot of maybe not so subliminal messages in terms of Artwork I've picked for records, people who I've chosen to do their artwork, song title subjects. If you pay very close attention, I think you'll understand how I feel about a lot of things. But yeah, I feel like in this current era of social media and so much 
online grandstanding and this sort of demand to speak up on all things all the time, I don't know. I just, I think there's an overload of preaching to the choir and I, I refuse to stand on the uh, verbal soapbox and give my opinions on things. You know, I, I, I think there's so many opinions being spoken about everything all the time, everywhere these days. You know, I, I wonder if somehow it loses its weight. I'd rather speak my piece on the world today in my actions as opposed to Twitter, T-shirts, hashtags, you live the life that you believe in, which is why you won't ever see me with a gun. <laughs> You know, you may not want to be preaching to the choir, but you have done some preaching with the choir. I'm thinking about the movement revisited, which is coming out on vinyl this year. Well, yeah, there you go. I'm excited that uh, it's coming out on vinyl. You know, it's funny. We had urged Mac Avenue to put it out on vinyl from the very beginning, you know, but uh, it works out well because now the the recording has a second life. So it's exciting that I get to re-announce this. It's a project that you've lived with for a long time. You know, you keep coming back to it. Do you find new stuff in it, you know, every time you have to come back to it? Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's the that's the beautiful part. Well, in terms of the music, yes. But um, in terms of the text that I chose for uh, the four icons who I decided to base this piece around, if you go and research Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., there's a treasure trove of wisdom from all four of those wonderful people. Hopefully, when someone hears the movement revisited, they'll be curious enough to go listen to more speeches, read more words from these fantastic people. You know, I, I someone had once asked, like, uh, you know, what made you choose that particular text from those people? And there really was no specific science behind it. I mean, particularly someone like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., because, like, he's been published so much. There's so many speeches. I mean, it's, it's, it would be humanly impossible to go through King's written work and, and uh uh, his his various speech, recorded speeches and whittle it down to, you know, 10 quotes or whatever it is. It's just impossible to do. So I just took 10 that uh, I knew and then I also read up on and um, thought that they would work well for this piece. The only person whose text that I had a, a, a very specific directive with was Malcolm X. Because I wanted to use as much of his post-Nation of Islam life as, as much as I could. Because uh, I feel like many, many people don't quite spend as much time with the last year of Malcolm X's life as much as they should. When he was able to put the American struggle in context with the world struggle. You know, once he went to Mecca and had his mind altered about who people are, that was very big for me. You know, like he was able to say, you know, I was wrong. White people are actually not devils, you know. And of course, there's a lot of people who 
didn't want to hear that because that's that's the narrative that we are required to stick with. But uh, Malcolm said, no, no, actually, I, I went to Mecca and I met people of all creeds and religions and races who were actually open and quite kind. And he said, well, maybe if the American white man would study Islam, we would be in a better place. And I mean, like you talk about two bombs dropped in one sentence, you know. In the past, I permitted myself to be used to make sweeping indictments of all white people, the entire white race. And these generalizations have caused injuries to some whites who perhaps did not deserve to be hurt. Because of the spiritual enlightenment which I was blessed to receive as a result of my pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca, I no longer subscribe to sweeping indictments of any one race. I am now striving to live the life of a true Muslim. So I wanted to focus much of Malcolm X's uh, world vision uh, in that as much as I could. Rosa Parks, it was difficult to find as much text on her as Malcolm X and Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. She just wasn't as prolific as a uh, interview subject or, you know, she, she didn't give nearly as many speeches as Malcolm X or Martin Luther King Jr. So I did some extra hard digging for Rosa Parks, which was which was fun to do. I actually met her when I was 15 years old, thought I was going to melt. <laughs> and Ali, he's another person who is a great example of with age comes wisdom. And to listen to what Mal both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, you listen to them in their 20s. And then uh, you listen to them in their 30s. Unfortunately, Malcolm didn't live very long, but you listen to Muhammad Ali in his 40s and in his 50s. His words just kept getting deeper and deeper as he lived longer. So I wanted to have a little bit of the sharp tongue, young Ali, and the, the sage Muhammad Ali. Do you relate to that process of having started out as the sharp tongue or the sharp-handed bass player as a young man, and as you <laughs> age through the instrument, you quiet down a little, settle down, come into your own? Well, no, I, I don't know if I've quieted down, but I, I will tell you, right before the gig last night, I picked up my bass and, you know, I played a couple of warm-up notes and my arms were sore. I was like, wow, okay, I'm back at the Vanguard. Because I tend to play hard when I'm at the Vanguard. You know, you got Nashi Waits back there, you know, nipping at your ankles, you know. You got to come with it. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember getting sore after the third night back in the day. <laughs> you might be getting sore, but I mean, I really felt watching you how the bass is such an extension of you. You and the instrument seem so at peace with one another. Just the physicality of the way you hold the bass. I mean, first of all, your hands are so big that the bass looks small in your hands compared to the way other people look when they hold the bass. I mean, do you think that maybe your pure physicality with it was part of what drew you to it initially? No, I actually did not want to play the acoustic bass originally. My my first instrument was the electric bass. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I went to middle school, I had to play in the orchestra. And, you know, someone made the suggestion that I play the, the double bass. And I kind of went kicking and screaming. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, no, the, 
the upright bass is not nearly as cool as the electric bass, you know, so it had to grow on me, and obviously it did, but uh, if you put me back to uh, 1983, I'm not very happy about playing the, the double bass. <laughs> When you introduced the band the other day, it's an old convention, but you, you know, you say where everybody's from, you know, you say, well, from Florida, from uh, Connecticut, from down the street. Is it important? Is it significant to say where somebody came from, to name the place that launched this person? When you study people and when you appreciate people and you want to learn as much about them as you possibly can, even in terms of their musical background, Knowing where they're from is a really nice place to start. Mm-hmm. Well, to that end, can you tell me what the word John means? A person, place, or thing. And it's basically a noun. <laughs> a noun, yeah. <laughs> but it's a noun in Philadelphia. Only in Philadelphia. You know, in, in New York, that word is joint. And, and I slip every now and then. You know, sometimes I say John or sometimes I say joint. I've lived in the New York area longer than I've lived in Philly at this point in my life. So joint and John get 50-50 usage Mm -hmm. in in my vocabulary. But then you go someplace like Memphis, and that word is not John, it's not joint, but it's junt, you know? So every city has its own colloquialism. At least I I think it still does, you know, because, again, I think uh, the world has gotten a lot smaller with, with social media. You know, you could go online, anytime and find out what someone is doing in Denmark or South America or Japan, you know, so there is a way to use modern technology to learn about the world. Yeah. But maybe there's some little regionalisms that get lost. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I hope they never do. Well, yeah. And and when it comes to the way, the way people play also, I mean, there certainly in the past, there were sounds, the way people played the music in different towns. That's something I think about often. I mean, I don't know if that's really still the case. There's a part of me that is, it's always, uh, I admire New Orleans because they seem like such a, a sovereign land <laughs> when it comes to almost everything. But, um, yeah, they, they, they will always have their vibe down there. Uh, social media be damned. They're going to keep their vibe. Philly always has their vibe. I find that cities that have, really strong music scenes also have very strong music education scenes. Mm-hmm. They go, they're, they're hand in hand, you know, which is why a city like Detroit, Chicago, Washington, D.C., St. Louis, L.A., uh, Houston, mm-hmm. they're producing, you know, just so many great musicians all the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, my hometown is just, I'm so proud of Philly, man, just Generation after generation after generation, just more and more great musicians come out of, come out of our, our hometown. And you attribute some of that, or a lot of it, it seems like, to the education. Uh, most of it. Mm-hmm. Most of it, you know. But like I said, the music scene and music education go hand in hand because most music educators are professional musicians. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they leave their private lessons or wherever their teaching gig is, and then they go to a gig. They're teaching all the time. Right. 
and it applies to you. You know, like on your website, you've divided your career up into different roles, which makes sense because otherwise, how would we ever figure out how to even categorize all the things that you do? Right. But, you know, some of them are happening simultaneously. When you're playing, you're teaching. When you're teaching, you're playing. You know, you're advocating at all times. Yeah. Well, you know, we all do that. Everyone has uh, multiple roles going all the time. You know, it's just what you take out of it at, at that particular time, you know. And sometimes those lessons are delayed, you know. So sometimes you you spend time with a person and you think you just had a casual conversation and then, you know, many years later you're like, oh, that's what they meant. You know, that's I love when that happens. Can you think of times in your life when that happened, when you you realized that you had learned a lesson much later on than, than when it was given to you? All the time. You know, uh, it, it, it didn't happen with just uh, musicians. You know, it happens with your own family. You know, certain things my mother has said or certain things, certain things my grandfather told me that still sticks with me, you know, especially when it comes to, like, money and things like that. It's kind of like I remember one time my, my grandfather had a talk with me about uh, – about real estate and, and, and bank loans and things like that. And uh, I remember after the conversation was over, I, I got almost got angry. I was thinking, like, I wish he'd had this conversation with me when I was 16. <laughs> I'd have been better prepared. Do you think about that when you impart lessons and wisdom to people, especially young? You know, you do so much teaching with young musicians. I mean, are you thinking to yourself, I want to make sure that I... I say this thing to you. You might not be hearing it right now, but I'm going to right. tell you the lesson right oh, now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Which in many ways is a harrowing task these days because in a culture where there's a lot of hypersensitivity going on, mm -hmm. many times people will misread your guidance and they go straight to Twitter or social media and they, you know, they blast you out about being some sort of ist or ism you know and uh that's not what it is man you know i i think about people like miles davis art blakey mingus betty carter they wouldn't make it in today's you know sort of hypersensitive twitter hashtag world you know because uh they shot from the hip in in many instances they were cruel you know but they were cruel because they needed you to know something quickly and for that reason, I'm forever indebted to all of those great legends, some of whom I had a chance to play with, you know, Betty. You know, and I don't know if you were around when we had a, uh, a roundtable discussion um, at during Jazz Congress. Uh, I think it was uh, January 2020, just before the pandemic. And uh, we had a roundtable discussion on Betty Carter about – six ex-musicians, two former managers, mm -hmm. you know, black men, black women, mm -hmm. and all of us agree that Betty could be mean, <laughs> you know. And, uh, you know, this had nothing to do with gender. This had nothing to do with anything other than, like, you know, Be Betty had a streak in her, man, you know. and uh, But she was always trying to teach us. And, um, God, what we wouldn't do to have her back, you know. Yeah, I thought about that a lot, too, about how many great artists of the 20th century would not survive this era. Right. You know, how does that how is that going to affect the work? You know, because like I remember when my father interviewed Miles 
in the 80s. It's a great interview, by the way. But Miles says to him, maybe I'm selfish, but geniuses are selfish. That's just how he thought about who he was. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard to move through the world that way today. You do the best you can. You know, I sometimes I see younger musicians doing things and you talk to them and you hope they figure it out. But ultimately, people learn from their own mistakes. You know, you just try to talk to them so that hopefully their mistakes won't cost them as much as they would if they didn't have the information that you could impart to them. But ultimately, people are going to have to make their own mistakes, especially younger people. I see certain cats out there doing certain things, and I just kind of chuckle like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. (laughs) Pull them aside and say, hey, man, you know. So, uh, yeah, that's that's our job, you know, to kind of see the young cats come up on the scene and put your arm around them uh, or not, you know, just lead by example, you know. Everything and everything in life is not going to be a grasshopper moment, you know. The last time I saw you, Christian, was very briefly in the mall underneath the hotel in Montreal, and you were yes. ca- kind of frantically looking for to buy some pants. pants to go on the road. Exactly. So, <laughs> right. you know, I don't mean in any way to trivialize you or or reduce you to a fashion statement, but two weeks at the Vanguard, at least you get to go home every night to your own closet. Yes. How do you approach it? sartorially is it project specific it is it is it how you're feeling I, I think it's project specific you know um i think in terms of pure style marcus strickland tends to be you know he sets the bar high yes in in the band i'm not sure josh evans actually owns a suit mm-hmm. so i'm doing my best to kind of stay somewhere in between uh marcus <laughs> and josh you know so I think Nasheed and I are both kind of conscious of that. You know, we'll we'll kind of balance it out. But so next week with Inside Straight, would it be more likely that you'll like be in a suit because those cats will come in a suit? I don't wear suits with Inside Straight. I mean, I, I might have on a sport jacket yeah. with jeans or something like that. But yeah. no, we won't be. I won't be suiting it up with those guys. Only only time I really wear a suit now is if I'm playing with uh, with my big band. That's the band where I really get a chance to get dressed up. Boy, you know, the question was a little lighthearted, but I realize that there is a real intention about the way you want to present, even down to among your, you know, your co-members in the in the music, what's going to make us feel connected? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, Christian, I'm so glad we got a chance to chat. Oh, thanks, man. Always, always fun to speak with you. Yeah. Likewise, man. There he was, my friends, Christian McBride. I'll be back again in your headspace before you know it. Until then... We'll talk soon. I'll talk to you soon. You got it. Bye-bye. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.